Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, and we welcome you here, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, that is, for our pastor's Bible class. It is so great to be back in person once again. Um, probably no secret, you know that for months now we have been going into a room and pre-recording these, and so going into a room and talking to a recorder for an hour is not very enjoyable. Uh, I even get tired of listening to myself. So it's great to be back in person. This is the second week now that we're back in our gymnasium. We welcome also those that are worshiping with us on KFUO, 8.50 a.m. in the St. Louis area and KFUO.org around the world. We're delighted you can be with us for the study of God's Word. As we have done in the past in this class, we're going to be looking at the Scripture lessons that will be assigned for next Sunday so that in most uh, of our Lutheran churches, uh, we'll be studying uh, Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7, first of all, then 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10, and finally the Gospel lesson, Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Before we do that, however, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for all your blessings to us those blessings which each and every day you provide in terms of physical necessities for life, even things that we may tend to take for granted from time to time, we know they all come from your bountiful goodness. We thank you especially also, though, for the forgiveness and eternal life that is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection once again. And finally, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to gather here and study that word. We pray your Holy Spirit will be with us and will guide us and bless us in that study. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're going to be looking, first of all, at the Old Testament lesson assigned for next Sunday, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. And before we take a look at it, just a little context. Um, when we're in this area of Isaiah... We really want to take a look at what's been happening and what is going to happen. And Isaiah, roughly 700 or so B.C., before Christ, and in 722 B.C., God sent the Assyrians to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, and to conquer them, uh, by and large, because of the uh, idolatry of God's people. In 586, then... God again brings judgment on his people, but this time using the nation of Babylon to do so. And Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, uh, many of God's people are carted off uh, into captivity, especially the brightest and the best. We use 586 as the sort of the, the end uh, date for Jerusalem and the temple, but actually there were deportations that happened even before that. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken uh, about 15 or 20 years before that, actually. So that uh, 586 just kind of brings an end to things. Now let me do something risky here we, with, with uh, people with masks on. I'm going to try to ask a question and see what you think here. Let's put ourselves in the position of those people who were, first of all, conquered, but then especially also carted off to Babylon. What are some of the thoughts that might be going through their minds as they're sitting there in Babylon, and uh, here we are, conquered, captured, and away? Anybody? Bill? Okay. How could God let this happen to us? 
Uh, after all, aren't we God's people? Aren't we God's chosen people? How could, how could this happen to us? Any other thoughts? That's excellent. Any other thoughts? Ruth? Yes. Has God forsaken us? Is, are we done as a people and in our relationship with him? Is this it? Is it all over? Okay? Good, good thoughts. Any others? I think those are a couple of the key things if you put yourself in the position of these people. The good news is, today, God wants to assure his people that neither of those things, that he has not forsaken them, and that actually, even though he has allowed this to happen to them, has brought that judgment upon him, good days are ahead. And I'm going to show you something really incredible in our Old Testament lesson for today, just before our Old Testament lesson, at the end of Isaiah 44, God is assuring his people that he is going to bless them, and he even names the ruler by whom he is going to bless them. Now remember, this is about 200 years before that ruler even lives. And the ruler's name is Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, who becomes the ruler of a nation called Persia, Persian Empire, actually, and they end up defeating the Babylonians in 539 B.C., so 586 to 539, and in 538 B.C., that ruler, Cyrus, issues what's called the Edict of Cyrus, and that edict allows God's people to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple, which didn't get rebuilt until about uh, 20 years later, 22 years later, and to rebuild the walls of the city around Jerusalem. But listen to the end of, of uh, chapter 44, and then we'll get into verse uh, chapter 45. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So just think of that. God refers to Cyrus this ruler of Persia, as his shepherd. He, it's the same way he referred in the Old Testament to Moses and to David. And here he refers to this secular ruler as his own shepherd and is going to accomplish God's own purpose. And you know, I guess if we see nothing else in what's going to happen here, we see again, confirmed again for us, God in control of nations, of rulers, and accomplishing his purpose using nations and rulers. 
And that's probably a good thing for us to remember uh, in these days, uh, these days that we have, it seems, such division even within our own nation, let alone between other nations, and such contentiousness, it seems, between people, again, even within our own country, to remember that ultimately, again, God is in control, and he is uh, utilizing people and even nations for his purposes. And, of course, his ultimate purpose is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so, again, a little reassuring word, I hope, for us this morning. Let's take a look now at Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 7. Uh, right on your sheet there, and let's read through. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates not, may not be closed. Isn't that amazing? Let's go back here. Notice what... God calls Cyrus in the first line, the first verse, his own anointed. Isn't that incredible? We just saw how at the end of the last chapter, he refers to him as his, as his shepherd, God's shepherd. And here now, he refers to the emperor of Persia as his anointed. And so he really is the one whom God has anointed for this purpose. And really, in a, in a way can speak of him as a Messiah for his people at that time, not saving them from their sins, of course, but saving them from their captivity in Babylon. And so, again, just incredible. And again, I want to emphasize, twice now, in two verses, God has named the name of the ruler 200 years before he even lived. Okay? Now, let's put ourselves again... Let's put ourselves in the mindset of the people as they are in captivity in Babylon. Would it be comforting or not comforting to know, as you're sitting there in Babylon, that 200 years before this guy even lived, God names his name? Comforting? Yeah, yeah. And so they are there now uh, in Babylon, and Cyrus comes to power in 539. Well, not comes to power, but actually defeats Babylon in 539. God's people think back to Isaiah, okay, God is at work now, and, and sure enough, a year later, they're going to be able to go back, okay? So incredible. Uh, whose right hand I have grasped. It's almost a picture of God taking Cyrus by the hand and leading him to accomplish his purpose, okay? And uh, just so you know, there was a there was a custom that they had in Babylon that on New Year's Eve, the uh, ruler uh, of Babylon would take the hand of the false god Marduk. And that was sort of symbolizing that that false god was supposed to lead them into the new year. Here, God is making a different picture. I'm taking the hand of Cyrus, and he will do my purpose and my will. Okay? Notice here... Uh, he's going to, Cyrus is going to subdue nations before him, like Babylon, of course. And um, the, Bab the uh, Persian Empire was an incredible stretch of land. Uh, I think it was 2.1 million square miles, something like that. Just incredible stretch of, of, of land. Uh, when you loose the belts of kings, normally kings would gird up their loins to go out to, to battle. 
And if you loose up their, their loins, their weapons also fall down. So it's another way of picturing the defeat of the, of the uh, warriors and the false gods. Uh, to open doors before him. In 539 B.C., the, the uh, one military leader, the one commander uh, for Cyrus, surrounded the city of Babylon. Okay? And you know what? The, the, false, the priests of the false god Marduk uh, basically told their leader to give up, to surrender. And they opened the city gates, and Cyrus's forces came in, didn't even have to engage in any battle. They simply gave up to Cyrus and surrendered to Cyrus. So look at that, it, right there. To, to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. Isn't that amazing? That's what ends up happening 200 years later. They open up the gates and let them come in without even any battle. Uh, number, uh, verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places or the high places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Notice here, all the way through here, this is God saying, I will do this. This is not Cyrus bragging about what he's going to do. God is saying to Cyrus, uh, he is talking to Cyrus here at this point, up in verse 1, that this is what he is going to do. So breaking the doors of bronze and cutting through the bars of iron, we think, is probably a reference again to, to uh, city gates and to any fortress that would be in the way. I, uh, verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness. We think that's a reference to the hidden treasures uh, of the empire, which were incredible. Uh, when Cyrus tells them they can go back, they bring out a whole bunch of gold and, and bronze and so on. Incredible wealth that they had there. Um, and the hordes in secret places that you, Cyrus, may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Isn't that amazing? For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. So again, it is for the sake of his people that God is calling Cyrus uh, to this task and calling him by name. Again, repeats, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Does it sound to you by reading especially uh, verses 4 and 5, does it sound to you as though Cyrus is at any point a believer or a follower of God? No, it seems not. Uh, repeated there, you know, twice for emphasis, is you do not know me. Now, he, Cyrus knows of Yahweh, knows of the Lord of, of, of Israel, but apparently not in the way we would think of knowing him and trusting and following faithfully. Uh, does not seem to be there. There's been a lot of speculation about that, by the way, uh, as to whether or not Cyrus ever converted and, and became a follower of the one true God. When you read his, um, his edict, we, we won't have the time to do that today, you can go to Ezra chapter 1, and the edict of Cyrus is spelled out there in Ezra chapter 1, and he does refer to the Lord as the Lord of the heavens and the God of, of, of the people of Israel, but Again, most think, especially because of these verses, God's saying here, you do not know me, 
that he probably didn't convert and wasn't, wasn't a, a follower even, at, even after everything had happened. All right, and then uh, verse 6, we start broadening out now. Now we're not talking specifically to Cyrus, but we're talking about now the people. So it expands outward from Cyrus to the people. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. So the rising of the sun would be in the east and all the way to the west that everybody may know that there is none other than me. So there really, we would think, there really were three goals here that God had in mind. First of all, that Cyrus would know that the one true God is doing this through him. Secondly, that God's people might benefit from the military victory that Cyrus and the Persians were going to have. And then three, that all people, as we see here in this, this verse, all people might know the one true God. Okay? Now, uh, going on, uh, verse 7, finally, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You kind of get the impression, don't you, in verse 7, that it doesn't matter what Cyrus does. It doesn't matter what Persia does or Babylon does or even Israel does. God is in control, and he is going to control the events and the people involved and bring about exactly what he says. Okay? And again, it, it actually happened. It would be uh, 200 years after Isaiah pens these, uh, not pens, but <laughs> writes these words, that, uh, that again, the, the Persians would defeat the Babylonians, and a year later, 538, God's people are allowed to come back. Uh, quite frankly, not all of them wanted to come back. Only some of them came back. Uh, some of them got to like it pretty well in Babylon. There was a lot of uh, affluence, uh, a lot of beauty there. And you see that God had to really stir in the hearts of, of his own people to get them, some of them, to come back. And uh, then, as I said, it took about 22 years. 516 is when the temple was, uh, again, completed, uh, rebuilt. And uh, quite a bit longer after that, before the wall itself in Jerusalem. But at any rate, God is here uh, promising his people that he is not going to forget them and that they are not forsaken. Okay? Anything else, uh, any comments or questions on this before we move on? Bruce? Yes, the question was when it's talking in, let's see, that's in verse... Um, Three, yes, thank you. Verse three, talking about the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. Yeah, there, there is, first of all, there is some of that gold or booty that would be from God's own people in Jerusalem, the temple itself. And then the other conquests that, they, that uh, over time the Persians had, had acquired over that time. And it's interesting that when they let God's people go back, they load them up with a lot of gold and a lot of, lot of, and I guess the stuff too, some of the stuff that came from the temple in Jerusalem. And then Cyrus also orders that wherever the, the, the Judeans are throughout the empire, that those areas supply them also. You know, it was like, it was like going to Home Depot with, with a, without a limit on your, on your gift card. You know, you just go and, and get whatever, and the people were supposed to stock them up so, I mean, uh, again, you can just really see God working 
uh, in this case, as he, as he says, through Cyrus. And I got to say, too, that it wasn't just with God's people, but Cyrus was known as being a pretty benevolent uh, leader who allowed people to practice their religion. Now, they had their official religion, a false god named Marduk, as I mentioned before. But it seems when it came to Israel here at God's people, it was way over the top. I mean, not only did he let them go back, but as I said, he's supplying them with all kinds of gold and precious, precious things. Okay, David? Right. Yes. Well, here's, no, here's what's going to happen. Uh, Isaiah's writing about, about 700 or so B.C., and then about 586, God's people are going to be taken captive, and then they're going to be reading, uh, reading and remembering this when they're in Babylon. Words come, yes, words come to them. And they'll, they will be, uh, obviously, the first Isaiah has, it's interesting, the book of Isaiah, you can be reading through a chapter, and it'll be talking judgment and, and doom and gloom, and the very next chapter, it's talking like this. And so it's both, we, we, as Lutherans, we would say law and gospel, right, <laughs> from Isaiah uh, to his people. Yeah. Yeah, there, you know, there's a, we don't know a lot about some of the specific details of how they lived their lives when they were in captivity. There have even been some, uh, I was reading uh, some accounts of Jewish-owned businesses in Babylon that were flourishing. And like I say, not, not all of them wanted to come back. They, some of them were doing pretty well there. And, uh, and God had to really stir them to, to come back and, and rebuild, especially the temple, his house. Okay? Yes. Kim. Yeah, they would be on... Yeah, the question was, would they have been written or just passed word of mouth? Uh, they would have been on scrolls, we think, at this point, and... Um, uh, would have been, but also the oral tradition would have been the other way. Yeah, it's word of mouth, as you said, the oral tradition itself. Okay, any other good questions? Any others? All right, let's move on. I'll tell you what, I want to skip to the gospel lesson just to make sure we get it in, and then we'll come back to the, uh, to the epistle lesson. Now, the gospel lesson, Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, not a very long one. Let me just tell you, this is Tuesday of Holy Week, all right? Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus, of course, on Palm Sunday has had an a incredible entrance to Jerusalem, people lining up, as, as you know, uh, waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna in the highest, laying their cloaks down uh, on the road in front of him as he enters Jerusalem. And we read that the chief priests, scribes, and elders are upset and they say to them, say to one another, what can we do? The whole world is going after him. Okay? So that's Sunday. Monday, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem and clears the temple. We think it's probably the second time. Clears the temple. And here we are on Tuesday. Tuesday was a day when the chief priests, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders seemingly wanted to trap him. They were out to get him. They were out to embarrass him publicly and get him to say something that would cause, them, uh, cause the people to dismiss him or say something that might allow them to attack him in terms of 
uh, being a so-called rabbi in their mind. And earlier in the morning, uh, earlier in the day, I don't know if it was in the morning or not, but earlier in the day, we had this, I think it was last week or the week before in the gospel lesson, uh, remember the, uh, the leaders come to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? And remember, Jesus says, well, I have a question for you. If you answer my question, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? And the, the leaders are all, you know, perplexed because they say, if we say from God, he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe John the Baptist? If we say from men, they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds held John the Baptist to be a prophet. And so they answer, remember, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then neither will I answer your question. Now here comes the second one. And we're going to have it in our, in our gospel lesson here. They're still out to get him. And they come to him. Let's just read the whole thing through first, and then we'll go back. Uh, starting at verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So they tried again. This is the second time. They tried to get him, and they're not going to be able to get him. Okay? Let's go back and look at this in a little more depth. Notice who's coming. The Pharisees, first of all, are coming. And the Pharisees... Uh, we're, uh, of course, we hear them a lot in the, in the Gospels. They were lay people. They were not the clergy. And they were especially concerned about the keeping of the law and uh, doing everything according to the commandments and a whole bunch of other additional rules and regulations that had been developed. Uh, for example, how, how far you could go from your house on the Sabbath day and so on. It was just all kinds of rules and regulations. So they come to him, and notice there, what's their, what's their motivation? They're not there to, you know, to kind of learn from him or, or even talk with him. They're there to entangle him in his words. Now, they send their disciples. In fact, in Luke, Luke refers to these disciples as spies that were going in to see Jesus. Now, there's another group that comes there with them called the Herodians. The Herodians were Jews who actually were just fine with the Roman government and the Roman rulers. They were, they were just fine with the Herods. That's how they get their name. And so they, unlike the Pharisees, thought Rome and being a Roman subject was just fine. And in fact, many of them were benefiting by it economically at that time. So you've got two different groups here. You've got the Pharisees who are very... Um, uh, religious in a sense, 
and would not be in favor of being ruled by Rome. In fact, they'd love to overthrow the Romans and especially quit paying taxes off to Rome and be under the thumb of the Romans. And you've got the Herodians here at the other end of the spectrum who think Rome is just fine. Let's just keep going like this. No problem whatsoever. They come to Jesus, and it's interesting. They ask him a question that when you stop and think about it, one, one party would be on one side of that question, the Pharisees, and the other party would most likely be on the other side of that question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? In other words, not is it lawful by the Roman laws, but is it lawful by God's law to be paying taxes to Caesar? Okay? Now, they, they, uh, notice there before they ask the question, in uh, verse, uh, let's see, well, it's verse 16 yet. Uh, what, what are they doing in verse 16 before they, before they ask their question? Did you, did you catch that? What, what's their uh, strategy here when they come? Flattering him, exactly. Look at that, look at that. Now, they, they acknowledge him as a teacher, don't they, or as a rabbi. And look at how they try to butter him up, first of all. You, you know, if you're on the receiving end of this, you know, <laughs> There's a former church official who shall go nameless, who every time you would start off like this with him, he, he, would, he would stop you and say, I hear a butt coming in here pretty soon. <laughs> you know, you're, you're all this butt, and, and it's going to come. So look at what they do there. Uh, that he says, uh, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Well, they aren't thinking that. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. And uh, you are not one who's swayed by appearances. In other words, you're impartial. You're not, you're not swayed by people's appearances. So is it lawful, according to God's law, to pay taxes to Caesar? Let me just tell you that um, the situation was that the, the coins that were used back at that time actually had, as it says here, they had a picture of, of Caesar right on the coin itself, on the one side, and he was uh, seated, actually, on one side, he was seated on what looked like a throne, had a royal diadem on his, on his head, and guess what the inscription was? Highest priest. Highest priest. In other words, holding himself to be divine, and that's what they finally ended up doing with the emperor, saying he was divine. Um, on the other side, uh, there was a picture of his head again, and it said, uh, son of the divine Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Now you can see how on the one hand, some of the Jews who would not want to, they wouldn't, a lot of the Jews would never acknowledge the emperor Caesar to be divine or to be a god. That's why many of them ended up you know, when the persecution started, uh, so many of them ended up being arrested and, and even executed in the, in the Colosseum. And so there were a great number of Jews who found it abhorrent that on a coin that, that they are using, you've got Caesar referred to in ways that would be honors that only God should be receiving, not, not the emperor uh, of Rome. And so the, and the Pharisees most likely would be included in that group. Then again, you've got the Herodians on the other side who are just fine with what's happening and uh, would have no qualms whatsoever. 
Now, let's go. Jesus, he says, give me the coin, and they do, and he sees it. It's a denarius. A denarius was simply a day's worth of wages is, is what it amounted to, a day's wage and a coin. Now, let's look at his answer. He says, whose likeness is on it? Of course, they knew. You wonder if Jesus actually held up the coin when he asked that question, but of course, they knew whose likeness was on it on both sides. Uh, they said Caesar's. Then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So is on the one hand, let's, let's just talk about this a minute. What was actually due to Caesar? Well, you could say his taxes were, uh, were due to Caesar, so money was in this case. And that's you know, sort of the first implication of what Jesus is saying. Um, allegiance in terms of the government itself. We read later in Romans 13 that all, all government authority is, is established by God and is in fact his means through uh, prosecuting evil and taking care of, of evil. But let's think about this. Does Caesar have anything that isn't God's? No. Caesar does not have anything that isn't God's. Even when it comes to money or wealth or riches or power or authority, right? Um, remember, Jesus said you would have to, uh, I think it was to Pilate, wasn't it? You would have no authority unless my father granted it to you, you know? And so now let's ask ourselves this. What does Jesus mean when he says, give to God the things that are God's? Is he only talking about money? Yeah, he's talking about, when you think about it, everything, right? Our, our, all that we are, our, our entire being, uh, our life. And he's the one, of course, who's about to give his life for us. But I don't know if you've ever thought about that statement before. Give to, God's what is, give to God what is God's, right? And so that includes virtually everything that he works in us. Our, our repentance of our sin... Uh, our, our faith, our trust, uh, all that we have, uh, our, our time, our talent, our treasure, render unto God what is God's. And uh, I'm not sure next week uh, where the sermon's going to go on this. I'm not the one preaching, but uh, that would be a wonderful uh, thing to talk about for a while. You know, that, that statement, render unto Caesar's what is his. In other words, yeah, you got to paying money that really belongs to God though yeah you got a, a allegiance to him but that really is his authority is established by God so really it's all God's isn't it now what if Jesus would have said something like stop paying your taxes to Caesar who would have, what, what, what would he have been charged with do you think by the people who were standing around there some of them treason exactly if he would have said look at look at that coin don't pay another shekel to that guy whose picture's on that, on that denarius. They would have, uh, in fact, later on, they end, up, they end up accusing him of treason anyway in the trial, right? That's one of the false charges, again, that they try to bring uh, against him. Um, if, he, if he would have said, by all means, pay all that you are due to Caesar, which is kind of what he was saying here, but if he would have really forcefully said it, then you've got the Pharisees and the Jews who are upset with him, right? So see, they thought they had him between a rock and a hard place here, trying to trick him again. And he very, again, very uh, uh, cleverly and wisely 
gets around their question, but in so doing, I think, gives us something to remember as well, that, again, it is everything is God's, not just, uh, you know, what, what we might think of, okay? All right, let me stop here. Any questions or comments on this? Yes, Bruce? Yes. Yeah, the, the question was, would they be paying other taxes local, locally? Yes. There were, those, there were different kinds of taxes, and there would be a temple tax, and there would be a tax that goes to Rome. They, they loved to tax people back then. And unfortunately, the uh, Roman tax collectors didn't have a very savory reputation. First of all, you had, to, you had to pay to get a franchise to be able to collect the taxes. And that lent itself to all kinds of corruption and, you know, overcharging people and bribes and, and all kinds of things and collecting more than you really should have collected, right? Remember when uh, Jesus, remember when Zacchaeus comes to faith? And what does uh, he say, or what does Jesus say? Pay everybody back what you owe them, right? And the implication is he's been taken in too much as time went on. So, uh, yes, they, they, people were taxed uh, heavily back at that time, which made it even more resentful by the Jews that they, that they had to pay all of this, and they didn't, didn't want to, except for the Herodians, which thought everything's great, everything's hunky-dory. All right? All right, any, any other uh, comments or questions on this? Yes, Ruth? Yes. Yes, excellent point. That when you think about it, Jesus has got, he's answering with the two kingdoms here, isn't he? The left-hand kingdom, or the kingdom of this world, and of, we sometimes refer to it as the secular realm, and then the, the kingdom of the right hand, or the, the church, his kingdom, you might say, the kingdom of God. And those two... And, of course, we know today, as, as Christians living in the here and now, we have a foot in both of those kingdoms, don't we? We're, we are citizens in both of those kingdoms and, and are representatives of the kingdom of God as we live here in the left-hand kingdom uh, as well. So, yeah, that's an excellent point, excellent point. Um, I'll just tell you that there's going to be a third one, and we won't look at it, but it's the one where they come up to Jesus, and they've got, they, they've got to try and trick him one more time. They say that a man and his wife were married, and the man died. And the, the, the custom, or the, actually the, the, the prescription was that if you died, you're, you're a guy, you die. If your brother, next, next in line brother, is not married, he is supposed to marry your wife. So I, I think we, when you got married, you probably looked not only at the guy you're marrying, but you better look down the line a little bit, uh, see who else might be there. Uh, so anyway, they come up and they say this happened seven times. So Lord, in the resurrection, who is his wife going to be? And they, think, they figure they got him here. He's not going to be able to answer this one. And then remember, he responds by saying that in the resurrection, there will not be husbands and wives. They will not be married and given in marriage uh, as the angels. And so he, he slips out of their, out of their attempted uh, trap once again. So this Tuesday, this is what was happening on Tuesday of Holy Week. It was very contentious. And this verbal sparring back and forth between Jesus and the disciples. Okay? All right, uh, before we move on, anything else? So, good questions, comments. All right, let's go on, then we'll finish up with the epistle lesson. And this is from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it's the very beginning 
of the letter of uh, Paul to the Thessalonican uh, Christians. Uh, just a little background. Uh, how many of you, some of you have been here, uh, been to Thessalonica? I know some of us have. <laughs> uh, it is a uh, thriving uh, town. It's Thessaloniki today, and you can fly right in there, a uh, nice airport. Uh, back at the time of Jesus, it had about 200,000 people uh, who lived in it. It was the major city. Uh, there, uh, the Greek, Greek uh, peninsula was divided into two main sections. One was called Macedonia, and the other one was called Achaia. And um, Thessalonica was the premier and largest city in the Macedonian province. Not Achaia, but Macedonia. And it was also a thriving uh, seaport. Uh, you had a lot of important officials, government officials, who, who lived there as well. And the big thing was there's a major highway back at that time called the Ignatian Way. And the Ignatian Way is a highway that started up at Rome and went to the east. And Thessalonica was on that highway. I don't know what you'd compare it maybe to I-80 or I-95 or something like that today. But it was a major highway. They used it for military purposes, but also, of course, for commerce. And so Thessalonica is a, a very important, thriving, major city uh, at that time. We won't have time to do it today, but you can read about Paul's time in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Uh, he goes there first, has great success, uh, success in terms of the, the gospel and, and people uh, being uh, brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And as happens uh, in these cities, many times the Jews get jealous, get upset, they get violent. Uh, they come to where Paul was staying uh, at, a, at a man's house named Jason and drag Jason out of his own house. Uh, really, you know, getting violent. They didn't, they didn't lay hands on Paul here, but came very close. I, th I don't think they could find him. And um, at any rate, um, this is what happened then in Thessalonica. And as you read Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians here is what we're going to do, you see that Paul has a wonderful relationship with them. In spite of what happened there, in spite of the violent opposition from the Jews, the Christians who are there, he has a wonderful relationship with them and uh, continually praises them and commends them as being examples for the rest of all, all rest of Asia Minor by the way they lived out their faith. It's not like the Galatians where Paul, uh, right away, he, he, gets, he greets them in the front part of the letter and then immediately launches into them. He doesn't even uh, say anything good about them uh, as he does here about the Thessalonians. So let's take a look at this. So 1 Thessalonians, we're going to start right at the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, just read the first verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, this is the standard way, standard format, for a letter at that time. We kind of reverse that. We, we save the signature for the very end, right? And here... Uh, in these letters, of course, where you wouldn't uh, want to unroll everything and get down to see who wrote it, the author identifies himself usually at the very top, at the very beginning. So Paul identifies himself here. Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is the same as Silas. It's just another uh, AKA Silas. 
And uh, Silas, of course, Paul, and our, uh, was a, a Jewish uh, religious leader in the church in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church, in, uh, a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul, uh, for Timothy, uh, remember Paul and Silas met Timothy in a town called Derby uh, on his missionary trip. And I say first or second? I think it was second missionary trip. No, maybe it was the first one, I think. Uh, at any rate, remember, Timothy has a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and a Jewish mother who became a believer in Jesus Christ a couple, a couple of years earlier. And so Paul and uh, Silas pick up Timothy, and from that point on, boy, Paul is like a spiritual father uh, for Timothy, and Timothy is like his, his young protege, or almost like a son uh, to him. So, now, uh, so those are the uh, three uh, authors to the church of the Thessalonians, notice here, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that Lord Jesus Christ is a confession in and of itself. It is saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, or is, it's the same word used in the Old Testament to translate Yahweh. So when you are saying Lord Jesus Christ, or a, a very early Christian creed was, the Christians used to say, Jesus is Lord meaning Jesus is God. He is the same God of the Old Testament who we have known and has, has been with us as Yahweh. Jesus is that. Okay? Grace to you and peace. Now, let's go on. Um, verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you just feel the, the, the wonderful sense he has in this relationship with the, with the Christians there in Thessalonica? It is a wonderful, close, he is so, uh, so uh, profuse with, uh, with his praise and, and really thinks so very highly of them. We give thanks to God you know, for what God has worked in them, right? Uh, that he, he mentions them constantly in his prayers. And notice what he remembers before God. First of all, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got faith, love, and hope there, don't you, that Paul mentions. So first of all, your work of faith. It's not meaning that they, they worked to get faith. It's the work that they are doing or the serving that they are doing as a result of their faith, right? We would say that today about uh, any Christian, that the good works that we do are not done so that we can become in a relationship with God or we can try to uh, work our way into relationship with God. It's just the opposite. It's the result of the fact that God has already established that relationship with us. So your work of faith, or the works that come as a result of your faith, um, your labor of love, so the, the labor that is prompted by love, love for both God and for one another, for our neighbor, so that, that labor that results from love, and steadfastness of hope, or we might say endurance prompted by hope. And you know... Um, in the midst of, again, I don't want to be too uh, uh, negative on the current times and all that, 
But again, in the midst of anything and everything we see happening, as Christians, we always have the sure and certain hope of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I don't mean hope in the sense we sometimes use the word hope to mean, you know, I hope it doesn't rain today or I hope, it, uh, I hope it's sunny the rest of the day. It, it's, we're not talking about something that, you know, might or might not be the case. When we talk about Christian hope, it is a sure and certain hope. It's sort of the opposite of despair. And, you know, uh, that's the one, uh, one of the greatest gifts we have. And one of the saddest things is when you see someone in life who loses hope or becomes hopeless in life as a result maybe of their situation, their circumstances, and becomes hopeless. And that's where we have a hope-filled message to say to them, to bring to them. So Paul here emphasizes the Thessalonians and their incredible example of faith, love, and hope. And notice where it all is found in our, again, notice there, Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, uh, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So going back there now, God has chosen you. Uh, their, their faith that they are demonstrating and the hope and the love that they have, you might say, is evidence of the fact that God has chosen them. God has called them, not because of anything good in them, but simply by his grace. So the hope and the love and the faith that they see is, again, evidence of the fact that he, that he God, has chosen them. It's, you might say the proof that they are called or elected by God. Same would be true of us today, right? Our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ is the evidence, again, that God has called us, that he has elected us before the, before the uh, foundation of the world. Uh, going on here, notice that the gospel came not just in word, but in power. God's word has great power. We also don't know, uh, it could be the case, that the power is also a reference to perhaps some miracles that might have accompanied the preaching of the word. We don't know that for sure, but certainly if not, the word itself has that power, right? It's the power of God on the salvation, the gospel is. And with full conviction. Notice it, it produces a strong faith and commitment, we might say, to Christ. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul here is drawing reference to his own example in their midst, okay? Uh, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Those, those are those two provinces once again. In uh, verse uh, 6, Kind of interesting, uh, affliction. They're, they received the word with much affliction. We think that's probably a reference, again, to the persecution that the Jews were perpetrating against them because of Jesus Christ. But notice, what he talks in one breath about much affliction, but then says with, with uh, what? Joy of the Holy Spirit. So even in the midst of this affliction and this persecution, they have joy that is the joy of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in them, continuing to work in them, 
So even in the midst of affliction, they have joy. Another lesson for us today, right? Another uh, good um, example for us. And notice there, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, those two provinces. You almost get the impression that Paul would, if, if you had to ask Paul, show me a, a model church uh, in somewhere in Asia Minor, it would be Thess the Thessalonica church, the Thessalonian church, and probably close behind Philipp uh, Philippi also, uh, Philippians. Uh, but he, he's holding them up as a great example uh, of what a Christian life should be. Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Wow. Just think of that Ignatian Highway, Ignatian Way that I was telling you, as people come through, as travelers come through and interact with the Christians there, the, that, that word and that example that the Thessalonian Christians are setting is traveling throughout that entire uh, empire and through Achaia and Macedonia as well, those two provinces. And they are a living example of what a church should be, right? And that's what, uh, you know, with all humility, that's what uh, we all as Christian congregations would strive to be, is to be an example, a light for all the other uh, congregations around, okay? Uh, verse 9, for they themselves report, the, the others in, in Achaia and Macedonia, other people report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So starting at verse 9 there, other people are reporting to us that they had the same kind of experience with you that we did. And it's a, it's a positive, a great one, right? And they themselves report it. Then uh, also notice, what were they before they turned to the true God? What were they? Idolaters, right? They were worshiping idols and uh, simply man-made gods, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Finally, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. The idea of, you know, when you read in the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is very much in the forefront of the uh, thinking of the Christian church at that time. And they are looking forward to it, and they are, uh, they are uh, anticipating it. Uh, with with great joy and of course we know we're still here he hasn't returned yet and that's just fine it's on his timetable it's interesting in second thessalonians they're going to tackle the question they were asking here in thessalonica hey christ hasn't returned yet what about my family members my friends who have died what about them and that's why in chapter four we get that great account of of what's going to be on the second day we read it at, we read it at funerals we read it at gravesides it's incredible and then finally um, so the second coming, notice there, whom he, God, raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers or rescues us from the wrath to come. So again, that, that great looking forward to an anticipation of that second coming. And uh, we wait for that day. We wait for that day. All right. Let me stop there. Uh, a couple minutes left. Any questions, comments, anything on any, any of the lessons that we looked at today, not just Thessalonians? No? All right. Thank you very much. Let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.